Napoleon's fundamental problem, or one of his fundamental problems, was that he totally lacked. He, he did have many of the attributes of a psychopath. And one of the, these was the fact that he totally lacked the capacity for empathy. And so he chose entirely the wrong strategy in this showdown, which was to put together the largest army the world had ever seen and to march up to Russia, beating his chest and his drums, assuming that Alexander would <laughs> come quietly. Major, major miscalculation. The whole thing is so epic in, in, in every way. Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. My name is Oliver Webb-Carter and I'm the editor and your host. And today's guest is Adam Zamoyski, a hugely distinguished historian who I first encountered nearly 20 years ago when I read his book on today's subject, Napoleon's Invasion of Russia. Adam's book is a real page turner and as you've heard at the top there, it's a truly epic tale and one of the greatest events in history that changed the course of Europe. Napoleon is pitted against Alexander I of Russia in 1812. Now, from 1803 to 1815, France had been up against Prussia, Russia, Austria, and of course Great Britain, in a series of wars of coalitions, there were seven in total. France, under first consul and from 1804 Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte, had sought to dominate Europe, and he had succeeded. By 1812, only Britain fought on, having gained a foothold in Portugal, and was now advancing in Spain. So there's a brief background for you. Adam's returning in a bonus podcast on Monday to talk about Russia and its mindset vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine and the Russian army. Adam has a unique perspective. He's a citizen of Poland and he spoke to me from his home there. He speaks Russian fluently along with many other languages and has long studied Poland and its relationship with Russia. Coming up, I've got Stephen Virapen on top 10 Tudor myths. The film club continues with a 2008 financial crash double bill, The Big Short, and margin call. With the current banking crisis, it's certainly relevant today, so please do subscribe if you haven't already, and please do spread the word and rate and review if you can. But until then, I'll hand you over to me talking with Adam Zamoyski on 1812 and Napoleon's invasion of Russia. Adam Zamoyski, welcome to the podcast. It's a, a real pleasure and, and, and indeed honour to have you on. So thank you very much. Uh, and we're here to talk about your book, 1812, Napoleon's March on Moscow, which is just an epic account and a truly wonderful book and was one of our early books of the nonfiction books of the month, which we had when we first launched. And so only now am I getting you on. Now we've got the podcast up and running. And so I wanted to, we're going to talk about the book, we're going to talk about contemporary events, and I just wanted to start for our listeners, Napoleon's invasion of Russia, they may not be too au fait with what the state of play was for the various states involved, or um, particularly compared to what central and eastern europe looks like today so i wondered if we could just start with with that really and then we can talk about napoleon's why napoleon went into russia which you know that and and operation barbarossa is always viewed as this kind of insane decision to invade russia 
Yes, well, the background is that between 1772 and 1812, Russia had extended its frontiers westward into Europe by some 600 kilometers, gobbling up what are now known as the Baltic states and a very large chunk of the then Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And both Prussia and Austria had conspired with Russia, mainly so as not to lose out, in closing down the Polish state, which was um, the largest state in in Europe after Russia at the time, a huge sprawling landmass. And the the, the interference of Russia into Europe or the, became very worrying to many states, to, to Austria, to Prussia, to most of the states of Germany, because Russia's newfound role seemed to be, be a, a major interfering power. I, you know, the, she felt that she had things to do and things to say and a mission. And, uh, for instance, at the opening of Tolstoy's War and Peace, there's a tea party and they're talking about not <laughs> Moscow or the invasion of, of Russia. They're talking about Lucca in Italy. Why? Because there were Russian troops right down in Italy, supposedly putting down French revolutionary forces as part of a coalition. Of course, it wasn't Russia alone, but Russia became a, suddenly a major power playing which felt it had a major role in Europe, and not just in the bits of Europe it had conquered, i.e. Poland, Belarus, what's now Lithuania, Western Ukraine, but um, right at the heart of Europe, and most notably Germany and Italy, the, the areas where traditionally France and Austria had fought for hegemony. This is the kind of deeper background to the whole business. And how about Napoleon? Because it's not necessarily any animosity towards the Russians that's motivating him, is it? Napoleon's interest, in fact, at the beginning, he rather wanted an alliance with Russia because he thought that this would be a useful way of controlling Austria and Prussia, which had been attacking revolutionary and then, you know, in France. And the Emperor Paul I was very keen on such an alliance. And indeed, they they hatched a, a sort of plan to have a joint march through Russia and Afghanistan into to throw the Brits out of India. So there were all sorts of um, uh, interesting things going on there. But it all went terribly wrong with the assassination of Paul I, because Alexander I, who succeeded him, was implicated in the assassination of his father. Not actively so, but nevertheless, he was involved. Is that because he's really a beneficiary rather than... No, it wasn't. He didn't really want power. He's a very complicated creature and he didn't want power. And But he realised that something had to be done to save Russia from from the frightful rule of his father, who was mad. But things went terribly wrong because when Napoleon got involved, well, didn't, again, didn't want it, but anyway, had the Duc d'Anguin, the the Bourbon, 
prince judicially murdered in France. Alexander put his court into mourning and denounced this as a typical act of the disgusting usurper. Whereupon Napoleon said, well, what about you, mate, and your father, which, you know, (laughs) didn't help their relationship. There was a very curious relationship between the two because, of course, Alexander rather admired Napoleon, as did indeed did many, many people throughout Europe for his, well, for his get up and go, for his military brilliance, um, for the way he had saved France from the revolution and rebuilt it and created a very efficient functioning state along enlightenment principles and so on and so forth. Because he insisted on seeing Poland as a usurper and was persuaded to, to join the, the Third Coalition, which, of course, ended in tears on the battlefield of Austerlitz. And there was a lot of silliness on the Russian side, for instance, um, Alexander. And Napoleon by then was the emperor of the French. And Alexander insisted on writing his notes to the ruler of the French Republic um, and, and things like that, which you know was just sort of silly um, bits of disdain, but particularly as you know, it was it was less than a hundred years before that the Romanovs had actually declared themselves emperors of, of of all the Russias. So you know it was throwing stones in glass houses, as indeed were many, many people at the time. You know, the, the, the King of Prussia's um, title of king wasn't really fully recognised by everybody until the Congress of Vienna, um, because uh, he had also assumed, you know, the royal title. The European rulers behaving like children. So there was an awful lot of silliness involved and personal pique. Now, you've mentioned Austerlitz, and so for just for the benefit of listeners, this was 1805, so this is seven years before the invasion of Russia, but it's probably important to understand how significant it was. The terrible defeat of Austerlitz had a, a shattering effect on Russian society. Russia had been on a great roll of conquest, since the middle of the 18th century. They kept beating the Turks. They took over the whole of Ukraine, Crimea. They pushed further east into right up to the Pacific. They had Alaska. They were creeping down the Californian coast. And, of course, they gobbled out Poland and so on. And suddenly they might march out to Austerlitz. And, well, the, part of the reason for their defeat was that they were just so gung-ho about it. And there were all these young officers saying, oh, we'll walk all the way to Paris. And, of course, they got absolutely trashed and all had to scuttle off in dis- disgrace, losing the huge army and, and lots of materiel. And it was a personal humiliation for Alexander, who, against all the advice of all his advisers, had insisted on marching out and being with the army because he wanted to be a Napoleon. You see, he wanted to to be there, to be a soldier. He really wanted to show that he was a dashing soldier. And, of course, he had to, you know, gallop away from the battlefield. <laughs> Jolly nearly got captured. His tail was firmly between his legs, and um, the Austrians sued for peace. Prussia hadn't joined the coalition, although it was supposed to, when it saw what had happened. and. Um, 
and was then soundly trashed by uh, Napoleon at um, Jena and Austerlitz. But Alexander felt he had to fight on, which he did for another two years until his a new army he'd put together was destroyed at um, Eilau and, and, and Friedland. And he then had to sue for peace and Napoleon treated him extremely nicely and flattered him and said, um, well, let's, let's rebuild Europe as a kind of, you know, we'll be the two great powers running the whole show. And, um, and Alexander was enormously flattered and bought it. He slightly had to buy it, but very soon realized that the, their treaty they signed at, at Tilsit in 1807, put him in an untenable position because it forced Russia into the continental system, which strangled its trade, sent prices in Russia sky high, the ruble tumbling, and Russian society saw Alexander as the author of the humiliation of Russia. They'd been tranced at Austerlitz, tranced at Eilau, tranced at Friedland, and Russia's economy took the most terrible, terrible shock over the next years. And so Alexander was desperate to break out of this, but he needed to rebuild his army. And he did methodically, very wisely. He built up a very competent artillery. He introduced new forms and so on and so forth. So, and he was preparing for a showdown with Napoleon certainly from 1808 onwards. And Napoleon very soon became aware of this. He had another meeting in 1808 at Erfurt with Alexander, which was not really very successful. And by then, Napoleon's ex-foreign minister, Talleyrand, was being paid by Alexander to spy on Napoleon and feed him with the lowdown. Russia was supposed to keep Austria in check because Napoleon had to go and deal with the Brits in Spain. Alexander tried to restrain the Austrians uh, from moving in 1809, saying, wait until we're all ready. And Napoleon's still too strong. The Austrians didn't take his advice and struck in 1809 and got defeated heavily at Wagram and forced into an alliance with Napoleon <laughs> um, against, against Russia. All they'd achieved was to strengthen the position of the Brits in, in Spain, really. But still, throughout those years, 1809, 1810, 1811, Alexander was preparing for a showdown, and he was already massing an army on the eastern borders of the Grand Duchy of Warsaw, the small Polish state that Napoleon had set up at Tilsit. And this was no secret, and he was uh, recruiting goodwill and throughout Germany. Uh, remember that Alexander, in, in terms of parentage, was something like um, 90% German, because all those the Russian imperial family kept marrying into various German families. And he was preparing to march westwards and raise the standard of revolt against Napoleon throughout Germany. In Prussia, there was terrific anti-French feeling. There was plenty of anti-French feeling 
um, in many parts of Germany. And so by the end of 1811, it had become abundantly clear to Napoleon, indeed nobody, that he had to do something. Otherwise, Alexander was going to march into the Grand Duchy of, of Warsaw and west, westwards into the Confederation of the Rhine and, and defy Napoleon's hegemony over the area. So it's almost like Napoleon's being forced into invading Russia. He really didn't want to fight the Russians because although he thought Alexander was weak and stubborn and quite silly, he sort of admired, he, he, you know, like so many people, he, he was entranced by the sort of the, the magic of Russia the, and, of, you know, the exoticism. And he, at one stage, had wanted to marry one of Alexander's sisters because the Russian imperial family sort of claimed descent from the Byzantines, or at least they regarded themselves as descendants of Byzantium, the third Rome. That's why Russia had the double-headed eagle as its symbol, its state symbol. And it tickled Napoleon's fancy to think that he could, you know, have marry a representative of the Byzantine Empire because he had crowned himself as a sort of latter-day Charlemagne, i.e. the Emperor of the West, and now he was going to marry the princess of the Emperor's Empire of the East. And he, he loved all this kind of nonsense. You know, just like Hitler suddenly would get these terrific sort of um, rather emotional, sort of mythological, get carried away on these dreams. And um, in the end, well, he married a, a Habsburg princess because there was no way that Alexander's mother would allow, and indeed there's no way that either of Alexander's sisters would be seen dead marrying Napoleon. Whereas... Uh, Is that because he's low-born? Because he was low-born and because they regarded him as a as a usurper, as a bandit, as a brigand, and so on. You know, there it was. There was a showdown coming up, a standoff, and Napoleon, really what he wanted to do, he didn't want to fight. What he wanted to do was to scare his supposed ally. Technically, they were still allies. And he wanted to simply frighten him into towing the line and carrying out his, his duties and didn't realise that um, because he was Napoleon's fundamental problem, or one of his fundamental problems, was that he totally lacked. He, he did have many of the attributes of a psychopath. And one of the, these was the fact that he totally lacked the capacity for empathy uh, which is to say that he was entirely incapable of putting himself in the position of the person he was negotiating with. And therefore, he couldn't see when he was pushing somebody too hard. And so he consistently pushed people to the brink, which meant that they would have to fight back. And he didn't realise that he was putting Alexander in the position of having to defy him or face such such rebellion at, at home. One mustn't forget that both his father and his grandfather had been assassinated. And uh, there was certainly talk of his being done away with. And he, he had a very tough sister the Grand Duchess Catherine, whom uh, many of the nationalists um, admired as, as, as a great 
the heroine and of, of um, Russian nationalism. And she was some, you know, she loathed Napoleon. And, you know, and there was a whole sort of circle around her, which, which actually did mutter about replacing Alexander with her. So <laughs> he was between um, a rock and a hard place, to use a hackneyed term, and Napoleon couldn't see this. And so he chose entirely the wrong strategy in this showdown, which was to put together the largest army the world had ever seen and to march up to Russia, beating his chest and his drums, um, assuming that Alexander would um, <laughs> come quietly. Um, major, major miscalculation. And from then on, it was really impossible. He, he was never going to win that war at all. Even, even if he had uh, not messed up Borodino? which was the major battle before Moscow. Yes, well, he could have... Well, first of all, if he'd moved faster and had not given command of one of his corps to his idiotic brother, Jerome, and had moved faster, he could have destroyed the Russian armies long before in in Western Russia. He did really destroy the Russian army at Borodino, but he could have obliterated it so thoroughly that there would have been no possibility of rebuilding it at all. And again, he, he didn't. But even if he had in either of those things, in either of those cases, not much would have come of it because Alexander was by then in a situation where he, he couldn't come and do a sort of second tilsit and say, sorry, mate, I'm okay, because he'd have gone home and got knifed, probably. And it, it was simply not possible. You know, and Napoleon simply didn't leave him any kind of way out and he assumed that Alexander's nerve would snap and that he'd come to negotiate but a negotiation wouldn't have been any good because from the moment he'd agreed to negotiate Alexander would have lost all authority in Russia and therefore the negotiations would have been pretty pointless. He could have won the war in the sense of totally destabilizing and destroying Russia from within by raising the standard of revolution, sending Murat with all his cavalry into Ukraine and raising the Zaporozhian and Cossacks against Russia and, you know, and, and creating a, a sort of a recreating the carnage of the Crimea and, and so on and so forth, abolishing serfdom in Western Russia and indeed recreating, which is what the Poles thought he was going to do and which he sort of kicked, kicked saying he might do, which was recreating the old Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, which would have so destabilized Russia that it would have taken put it right back hundreds of miles further east and left it floundering around, having to rebuild its whole sort of economy and state structure and so on and, and probably put down surf rebellions all over the place and so on. So, But he didn't want to do that. That was the trouble. It was like he was trying to frighten a mistress who had become wayward and trying to, you know, bring her back to bed by threats, you know, and it, he could have really, really undermined the Russian state in a serious way and, and done it serious damage. But he didn't want to do that because he wanted Russia as a partner and he wanted Alexander as a partner. And he didn't have a proper war aim. And as we know, if you don't have a, a war aim, you can't win a war. The range of sources that you used for the book and 
it really is obviously there are French and Russian for obvious reasons, but we also see Prussian, Italian, and Polish, and plenty more nationalities. And for a start, that makes it almost quite quite a standout book amongst publications prior to when this was published in 2004. And also it makes one think how international the conflict was. I mean, even in the armies, how international they were. The wonderful thing about the whole of 1812 is, first of all, you've got this huge kind of, it's like a great Greek tragedy, you know, hubris, nemesis, these two men pitching their wills against each other, this extraordinary downfall of Napoleon's, which is the most spectacular defeat, (laughs) um, suffered by a man who's thought to be a military genius. And yet it's also the beginning of the Napoleonic legend, because you know, he rises out of this a terrible thing. And there's that aspect to it. And the other, and obviously there's this epic thing of, of it involving, as you say, the whole of Europe and some. What makes these various European sources so valuable and so, to me, interesting is that they do bring the whole thing to life because it was a wonderful, it was one of the first campaigns in which there, were, there was quite a high proportion of literate people, amongst even amongst the troops, the rankers. And they wrote letters home, and then they wrote up their little memoirs. And they spoke about things that concerned and bothered them, which, you know, grander people very often don't. And they wrote about the state of their stomachs because of what they were eating. You know, that, for instance, what's wonderful is that they became unselfconscious in writing. And so that, you know, these details, such as the fact that they had to split and stitch the back of their pants because they couldn't defecate otherwise because their fingers were so cold, they couldn't do up their buttons and pull their pants up again. So they couldn't do that. So, you know, things like that, which, you know, you don't get these these raw details otherwise. And here, and they explain, they describe what they ate, putting a bit of bread in, mixing it in with axle grease to <laughs> nourishment, you know, and things like that, and cooking things you wouldn't imagine cooking. And the other fascinating aspect of it is that the various nationalities, you can compare them, because of course, they talk about each other and comment on each other. You get a, a very interesting picture of how the different populations of, of the various countries of Europe, about you know, how much more emancipated they were. For instance, the French, after 20 years since the beginning of the revolution, had become very emancipated. So they were fantastically débrouillard, as the French say. You know, they, they'd go off and scavenge and they'd know how to fix things. And for instance, one Westphalian officer comments saying, our troops are absolutely useless. They're like sort of, they just do what they're told to do. And if they do go out foraging and find some food, 
they waste half of it. Whereas the French, he says, are wonderful because they'll get some food and they sort some of it and they preserve some of it and they store it in such ways so they know how to use it and how to make it delicious. And, you know, you find, for instance, the, the French and the Poles, mainly because the Poles, partly they'd served in French armies for a long time, but were also had an unsettled political history, were very good at sorting things out and getting things done. put studs on the hooves of their horses, unlike any of the others. It's fascinating detail. um, But also about foraging, about... And you see, and and the other thing is that French units, because of conscription, almost every company sized unit had a cobbler, a baker, a butcher, a candlestick maker, so that when they managed to get a pig they knew how to butcher it Um, if somebody's shoes fell apart they knew how to sort of fix them up they had tailors apprentices and things so they could you know if they found some cloth somewhere they could patch their uniforms most of the german troops which were drawn from little principalities from the former the Holy Roman Empire, where they had just been told what to do from, you know, for generations. And suddenly, when authority broke down, and there wasn't somebody upstairs telling them where their next meal was coming from, a lot of them just sort of gave up and died. And so the the wonderful insights into the peoples. And the other thing which I always found fascinating was Napoleon's quartermastership knew what diets people were used to. Because in those days, you didn't have a Chinese takeaway or an Indian takeaway or an Italian restaurant or a Polish deli on every high street. Every nationality, every people drawn from every area had been eating the same things for millennia. And if a whole lot of Italians were suddenly given too much pig meat and, and grease and cabbage, they died. The French had to have white bread. And, and the quartermasters knew that if a Polish regiment was marching through town, you had to produce these and these and these types of food. If a Croatian regiment was marching through, <laughs> you had a different diet. And for instance, in the Peninsula War, it was absolutely dramatic. All those Germans and Poles and people, suddenly they couldn't take all, everything cooked in olive oil. Their stomachs just gave up. They were sick as anything. The Belgians even started brewing their own beer because they couldn't stand all the wine. Um, So these things were very interesting. The research on on 1812 was just uh, so fascinating from that point of view and of how people treated their horses, you know, survival skills. And some, some of the contingents, which were drawn from very feudal societies, had no survival skills at all, whereas others had uh, tremendous survival skills. And so there was a wealth of very interesting stuff. The retreat from Moscow, which, you know, as you said, this is the largest army of all time, it was a half a million or so, roughly. And by the time they get back, it's 10, roughly 10,000. Is that right? That sort of thing. I mean, the trouble is, these numbers are a real problem because... Yes, yeah, so I'm looking at the Charles Minard, you know, the, 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 yeah. the graphical His... table, yes. Well, I, I put together my own graph. Yes, which is, which is brilliant. Which is slightly different. Hello, listener, Ollie here. Just a bit of info. The Charles Minard graph is a graphical depiction of the Grand Armée's 500,000 men dwindling 
as it advances to and retreats from Moscow. I've put a link to that graph in the show notes. If you want to see Adams, well, of course, you have to buy the book. Now back to the show. The, I don't think he realised or wanted to admit, perhaps, quite what the rate of desertion was from the beginning. Um, also, you have to, as I explained in my book, you know, a, a regiment is supposed to, you know, say a squadron of cavalry sets off and it's 150 strong. And after the first day's march, five horses have gone lame. Another one's got um, saddle sores and a couple of chaps have fallen ill. So probably about 10 people and six horses are left behind. This sort of thing carries on at every stop. Now, some of them come forward having got over their lameness or whatever was wrong with them, but some don't, and some malinger. So within a week, those 150 men are probably down to about 90. But the trouble is that because Napoleon didn't like being told it, everybody kept writing up the commanders that they had their 150 men, their full complement. So the poor man was terribly misled. And those were the official figures. And so there were far fewer people in those battles than one is led to believe. And desertion started very, very early on because the conditions of the march into Russia, which is something that is not often recognised, were almost worse than those coming out. The heat, the thirst, you need to know this part of the world, eastern Poland and what's now Belarus, the insect life. You get horse flies that just bombard you in swarms. And here out in Poland, we can't, you can only put the horses out paddock between four o'clock in the morning when the mosquitoes go to bed and seven when the horse flies wake up because it's simply not possible. They are literally covered in horse flies and, you know, and, and, and hornets and stuff. And these poor fellows marching in their awful uniforms with their heavy backpacks and things in sweltering heat of, you know, 30, 40 degrees through sandy terrain with very little water. And the, the point was that the whole area they were marching through was very thinly populated. Anyway, in Italy or France, you know, there was a, every few hundred yards, there was a farm and where there was a farm, there was a well and you could get a drink of water. Here, you could march for miles and miles and then you saw a farmstead and, and you know, if a regiment of 400 men and horses turned up, well, there was not much left at the bottom of the well before half of them had anything, a drop to drink. And also they had the sense, because it was so underpopulated, which it still is, the whole area of Belarus. And, and it's a just a rather mournful landscape, of quite flat, of very sandy, uh, with lots of some large rather forbidding pine forests and things. And, you know, they, they felt they were falling off the edge of the world. They, didn't, they weren't happy at all. And so loads just either sat down and pretended they were ill and then crawled off where they could. And loads just deserted and went, I went back home or went and wherever they could find. And, and remember that in those days, well, I suppose just like now, you know, immigrants 
very welcomed on the farm. An able-bodied Prussian or something, or a Swabian or a Frenchman, who turned up in a Belarusian village would be snapped up by the lord of the manor. You know, because the chances are that he'd have higher crafts and he'd be jolly useful. And so you hit him. And it's not known how many people did sink into the countryside. Huge numbers of serfs took the opportunity to move west. And so there was a huge movement of population going on right at the beginning. The army lost really two-thirds of its effectives long before it fought any serious battles. And it's impossible to tell... How many of those died of thirst or disease or were killed by locals for their boots or whatever? And how many of them lived to find a new happy life, possibly found some girl who wanted a husband or something or could do or whose husband had been recruited into the army and could do with a nice pair of male hands around the house around the farm so there was an awful lot of that going on huge human drama I mean, the whole thing is so epic in every way yes there was this extraordinary loss of of life and loss of horses there was there was suddenly in all this heat there was in a few days in there was suddenly a biblical downpour storm which lasted for hours and hours and hours a freezing rain and coming after the heat it simply killed lots of people they died of hypothermia they lost about 50,000 horses in the space of 24 hours you know that meant a whole lot of guns and supplies and all sorts of stuff had to be left behind and a whole lot of men died as well and lots just got stuck in mud and they couldn't get out of. The advance was spectacularly awful, and it certainly removed a greater number of men from the army than did the retreat, because by the retreat, the far smaller contingent set off, and many of those were captured. Quite a few of them survived. So that 10,000 at the end is not what survived of the half million that went in. And, and I should think that at least a couple of hundred thousand deserted and uh, survived. And on the retreat, a couple of tens of thousands survived because they were taken prisoner and then found either repatriated after um, 1814 or, or found a happy new home and happy new life in, in Russia. And there are stories of some that, that settled, and uh, there are quite a few stories, quite interesting stories, which weren't much written about because neither side wanted to talk about these things, but uh, they did. But of course, the horrors of the retreat, the, particularly the last, the last stages with the starvation and the frostbite and the just you know, people sitting down and just freezing and the terrible technical realities that you had to slice some horse meat off a horse while it was still alive because within minutes of it dying it froze solid and you couldn't hack it away with an axe and you know people would somehow find a potato and or a crust of bread and would put it in their uniform thinking I'll eat it later well they couldn't because and 20 minutes later, it was rock hard because the frost was so quick. The technical minutiae of the, again, it's all about survival. It's uh, fascinating. There had been talk of, I'd been approached to make a, some television programs after my book came out. And I said, what I'd really like to do 
is to take, for instance, a couple of gun, gun teams of the Royal Horse Artillery King's Troop and watch them march sort of 100 kilometres across that terrain where they had to ford rivers with steep banks and then take a whole lot of British squaddies and give them, dress them in the frightful uniforms. Thick woolen coats in the height of summer. And and, and gaiters and and breeches that, you know, that hurt you around the knees and shoes that, you know, wooden soles with just a bit of leather tacked down, both the same for the same foot, you know. know. And say, right, um, today you're going to march 20 kilometres in that direction and I'll meet you around your campfire (laughs) this evening and then see how many of them were still there, what condition their uniforms are in, which of their weapons were still serviceable, how many bits of their backpack they'd chucked away and so on. Because remember, they were fording rivers. So these uniforms fell apart because they were soaked. And then, you know, you've got a wet pair of breeches and not sewn like jeans today, but, you know, pretty flimsily sewn by, you know, women with needle and thread. And you're marching along in wet things. And, of course, the whole thing starts falling apart very quickly. And it would have been fascinating. And the other thing I would have loved to have done is to, you know, staged the famous charges against the Grand Redoubt at Borodino, but cover the, first of all, send all the horses out on a sort of 20-mile hack, so they were nice and tired, not feed them too much for a few days, then scatter the whole of that hill with sandbags representing corpses and broomsticks representing muskets and tennis balls, larger things represented all the spent cannonballs and the rubbish lying around, and then say, charge fast up that hill (laughs) and see how long it took them and how spectacular the charge was, because in films and things, everything's also speeded up. And in fact, they must have been excruciatingly slow. (laughs) And, um, And also it would have been interesting to see how many times the cannon could have reloaded and fired blanks, obviously, during that period of time and so on. Um, because I, I think it's these um, minutiae of, of, of history were so interesting. Just a quick final question then, because I know we, we've overrun, but it's so fascinating hearing about it, is I was always rather disappointed that Napoleon, whilst this army is going through hell, he's in his carriage and he's 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 sort of off-ski, isn't he? He, he departs... I, I suppose there's no real reason for him to hang around when he knows the cause is lost. But I always found it a bit disappointing he did leave, got back to Paris a lot sooner than the remains of what was left of the Grand Armée. Um, yes. I mean, it's, if you like, an ugly moment in the military epic because, in a sense, he should have trudged out at the head of his troops and, you know, fired the last shots in the way that the wonderful Ney, who... Having crossed the Niemen, turned around, having found a musket and just fired into Russia and then came along and said, I am the rear guard of the Grand Army. But he, as he put it himself, I now have to stop being a general and I have to start being emperor. And he had to get back and 
mobilize the country and raise a new army. The great mistake he made um, was leaving Murat, his brother-in-law, in charge in Vilna, now Vilnius. Had he left, for instance, Davu in charge there, it would have been a very, very different picture. They would have held Vilnius because the Russian army was incapable of fighting by then. All they could do was follow. And that would have meant that the whole insurrection of, in Prussia may well not have happened. You know, so, But for political reasons, he felt he had to leave Mira. It was a very inglorious end in that sense. And, and as I say, the, the, the only glory is at that moment, stage is, is achieved by Ney. But the whole thing was such a sort of nonsense. And as he maintained, he was quite right, he kept maintaining that what was ridiculous about it is that he hadn't been beaten once. There was no point in that campaign at which the Grand Army suffered a defeat. <laughs> As I think it was the, the Austrian commander Schwarzenberg put it, he said it was a the most ridiculous kick from a donkey that anybody's ever caught it. <laughs> because, in a sense, it wasn't a showdown with a lion. He just sort of got kicked by a donkey, but um, lost an army and, um, and changed the history of Europe. Well, that's a fantastic way to end it. Adam, this has been hugely enjoyable and epic in itself. And uh, what an epic book. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Great fun. And we'll be speaking again to coincide with the Ridley Scott movie about Napoleon. So that will be yeah. uh, I'm very much looking forward to chatting. About yeah, that. well, that will be fun. Yes, we can talk about some of the other films as well. Wonderful. Uh, thank you, dear listeners. And as I mentioned at the start on Monday, Adam returns with a bonus pod on Russia, Ukraine and the Russian army. Plenty more great content coming up. So please do spread the word and subscribe if you can to get these episodes in your feed. In the meantime, thank you and good night. Mm-hmm.